Thank you. 20 years ago, can you remember what was happening 20 years ago? George W. Bush was finishing up the uh, end of his first term as president. The Iraq war had just started. Uh, Janet Jackson had an incident at the Super Bowl halftime show. You may recall that one. Usher's song, Yeah, was at the top of the charts. I think he's now going to be the halftime entertainment this year. And then, I mean, last but not least, the sitcom Friends was finishing up its uh, uh, 10th season, um, its final season, 10 of 10. See, 20 years ago is not that is not that long, is it? Why does it matter? Well, everyone would agree that the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. He's, he's the author. And everyone, pretty much everyone agrees that he wrote it within 20 years of the events of you know, the life, death of, of Jesus. And so really, he's writing what would be the equivalent of us writing about something that happened in 2004. Now, 20 years prior, 11 of the disciples come forward to make the claim, you know, we've seen the Lord. He's, he's alive. He's risen from the dead. And maybe even then, like the average person, I know how the average person would respond to that kind of claim today. Maybe then the average person would, would have easily replied, like, yeah, of course you'd say that. You know, that's the way for you to get your movement going. That's the way for you to amass power. But then, Paul goes one step further in the passage today, and he says, look, it wasn't just 11 who saw him. There were 500 people who, who have seen, who saw the risen Lord back in, you know, Judea and, you know, Palestine. And like, what, what stood out to me about that statement is you, you just simply could not have make a claim that 500 people were around a public statement like that, 500 witnesses, only 20 years after the event happened, unless, of course, there really were hundreds of people who, who had seen him and were still around. Like, I mean, the equivalent, again, it would be like 2004. You, you know, in Hinduism, we've got the Bhagavad Gita, and it speaks about this huge battle that took place around 3000 BC in, in which Krishna was... It incarnated as a chariot driver. And then the, the oral testimonies about Krishna, uh, you know, continue for thousands of years. The very first mention we have of Krishna in the historical record doesn't take place until about 400 or 500 BC when it speaks about him being worshiped. And then in Buddhism, you know, the Buddha died in the 4th century BC. Buddhist scholars, they will acknowledge that the stories about the Buddha they, in his teachings, you know, they circulated orally for a minimum of 400 years before they were written down. A whole lot can happen in a story when you've got thousands of years or hundreds of years between the event and, and it's being, you know, written down. But like 20? You know, in Christianity, within 20 years of the death of Jesus, we have claims of the resurrection written down of 500 witnesses. Why does that matter? Why is that important? Because every one of us struggles to believe, don't we? I mean, who of us, who, who among us doesn't go through a period of time when faith is just hard? It, it's, you're having doubts and, and you're in a period where you're just struggling, um, struggling to believe, tr- struggling to make sense of it. The reason that 20 years matters is 
you have a rock-solid historical claim that can, you can go back to and investigate. Like, always, always, always go back to the resurrection. Because there's, there's really compelling historical reasons for believing in the resurrection of Jesus. I'll say one more thing before I read the passage. If Jesus rose from the dead, if, if that happened, then Christianity is, is true, period. Like, it, it doesn't even matter if there are errors in the Bible. It doesn't even matter if maybe the traditional authors of the Gospels didn't actually write those books. Um, it doesn't even matter if Christians are the biggest hypocrites and the biggest phonies and you don't like how they vote and you don't like how, how they act. Like, whatever the objection is that is eroding your belief, if Jesus actually rose from the dead, then it is game, set, match. Because that is, that is the, the, the Trump truth claim of all truth claims. And, you know, Paul believed that. And he's got people in the church in Corinth who were saying um, the resurrection doesn't matter. And maybe the resurrection didn't even happen. And the resurrection is kind of r- ridiculous. And we're, we're all past that. And Paul reacts really big time in chapter 15. And we're going to preach it over a couple of su- Sundays t- today and, and then the following Sunday. Let's read verses 1 through 20 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold on to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. <clears throat> for I passed on to you as, the mo- as most important what I also received, that Christ, and this is his articulation of the gospel, by the way, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day, again, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some of them have fallen asleep. Then he uh, appeared to James, his brother, then um, one of the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, uh, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, so we proclaim, and so you have believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say there, there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our, our pro- proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. It's a euphemistic way of saying those who have already died, they're they're fully perished. Verse 19, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. Our Father, 
help us to uh, comprehend the profound significance of the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Um, Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see Christ in in all of his glory and beauty. And as we reflect on the miracle of his triumph over death, may the power of the resurrection instill in us this deep understanding of transformative hope and eternal love that radiates from that sacred event. Help us to believe the gospel, we pray. And again, we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, How many of you would believe in the resurrection if it could be conclusively proven that we found Jesus' bones? I know you say, well, nobody could prove that. How are they going to prove that? But let's just say that that we could, that we've conclusively found the bones of Jesus in Palestine. How many of you would still be Christian? I mean, I hope (laughs) that the answer is none of us, right? Because Paul's very blunt. I mean, right? He says that if, if... if the resurrection is false, like where would we be if it's bogus? He says we'd be the most pitiful people in the world. We would be the absolute most pitiful if it wasn't true. And then he goes on kind of negatively to give us some reasons. If it weren't true, then what? And the first one of these, number one, if the resurrection is not true, we have no way to deal with our guilt. We'd still be stuck in our sins. Let's talk about that for a moment. Somebody has once said that a guilty conscience is the seasoning of of our daily life. Interesting way of putting it. All of us struggle with uh, a a guilty conscience. All of us have our own insecurities and inadequacies, along with a guilt that just gnaws away at the inside of us. One of the funniest Saturday Night Live sketches I think it was back in like the late 70s or maybe early 80s, but there was a character, Stuart Smalley. Does anybody remember old Stuart Smalley? It's actually Al Franken. That's what he used to look like. So Stuart Smalley, um, he, in this little sketch, he does these positive self-help affirmation sessions. And they actually wrote a book with the same title of his, of his phrase in these affirmation sessions. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. <laughs> You've heard that one before. The problem was that for Stuart Smalley, none of that was true, right? He was not good enough. He was not smart enough. And people can stand to be around him. And, and on the, the reason that it was so funny is because we all feel that way <laughs> at times. All of us. All that sense that, you know, I'm, I'm not enough on my own. And then we look at our behaviors and listen to our words. And we have this over, overarching, gnawing guilt that is chewing on us. I, I struggle with that. You know, one of the hazards of being a pastor is I, I have to get up here and talk every week to you. And I try to be very circumspect in what I say and, and not stick my foot in my mouth. Um, but there are times when I will say something and, boy, I wish I could take it back. Um, because it was either wrong or I didn't say it well or maybe I said it insensitively. And yeah, even though I, I try my best not to do that, nevertheless, I, I, like, okay, the honest truth is there are many days on Sunday afternoon or evening or on Monday where all of a sudden I'll just hear something that I said from the pulpit and, and, and I'll just cringe, and I'll just shake my eye. I physically have to shake my head to, like, shake it off. 
because it's bothering me so much. And that's just kind of a, that, it, it's a pastor problem universally. I was listening to a, another pastor and he said the same thing. He said every now and then he'll be getting into the shower and he'll just say, you idiot. Um, you, why did you, why did you speak such an embarrassing thing? He said, not long ago, I said, you idiot to myself about something that I had said over 30 years ago. And that's all of us, right? We, we all struggle with, with guilt. He, he goes on in verse 16 and 17. If the dead are not ri- raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are, you're still in your sins. You're still, in your guilt. But you, he knows, are not in your guilt. And that's part of the great joy of being a follower of Jesus, is you've been freed entirely from all of that. Tell me if this has ever happened to you. You buy something at a department store, let's say Best Buy. You buy an expensive piece of electronics. And as you are exiting the building, you pass through those scanners that they have right at the door. And maybe the, the checkout attendant didn't take off the uh, magnetic um, tag on, or whatever. And you walk out, and all of a sudden, the lights are going off. The sirens are going off. And you're like, oh, no, I've been, I've been caught. Do I, what do you say at that moment? Do I have my receipt? You know, do I have my receipt? And, you know, now whenever I go to, even to a store like Walmart, when I'm checking out, and I don't even have, I just have groceries, but... But I'm always like patting myself down. Do I have my receipt? Is it in my bag? Just for fear of going through those scanners and it, the, triggering them and, and going off. I mean, I've been traumatized. <laughs> um, how do I know that you have paid for for this? Prove it, that, that, that you have paid your hard-earned money and that you don't owe us anymore. How, how do you know that Christ has truly you know, paid for your sins? How do you know that he paid it all? You know because... He was sprung from prison. You know, he, he put in all of his time in jail, so to speak, in three days in the tomb. And he is out. And you are out with him. You know, and the resurrection is essentially like God's receipt that he gives to us. And he stamps on the receipt, paid in full across all of history. He, he overturns the judgment that was against Jesus. You know, here is the king of the Jews, a messianic pretender. He overturns the, the negative judgment by sending him out of the, the tomb on Easter morning. And, and that's how we can deal with a guilty conscience. Do you know how to speak to that accusing voice that is inside your head? You, you, you speak to it this way. You say, you know, I, I know my sins are forgiven because 500 people looked at him and saw him with their own eyes. And because the apostles saw him and James saw him and, and you know, Paul saw him. And, and I, I know he is alive. Amen. You know. One other point before moving on. If there's anybody here that maybe says, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. He was a, a real man. He was a good guy. He was a good teacher. Uh, I believe in him in, his, in a general way as a moral exemplar, but I don't know if I can believe in, in his bodily resurrection. Well, Paul would say to you, if you don't believe in his bodily resurrection, you're still in your sins. Because the bodily resurrection of Jesus is, you know, the linchpin of the gospel. And the only way to believe in the gospel is to believe uh, in it all. And, and that's, you know, still in your sins is not where you want to be. With Christ, with Jesus' resurrection, a new world has opened up in which the all-embracing power of sin and death 
no longer hold sway. You know, the world that we know, the world whose loveliness, majesty, fragrance, and, and teeming life are mocked by death, decay, corruption, and sheer entropy, you know, has heard the news that there is, there is all a new way forward, a way into a life yet greater, more beautiful, more powerful than this one in the resurrection. You take away Jesus' resurrection, and all of that is put into doubt. Um, so now that's number one. <clears throat> We'd still be in our sins. Number two, if the resurrection isn't true, then Paul says death reigns supreme. And you might even go a step further and say chronic depression, it's justified. It's completely justified because there is absolutely no hope for the world. Now, obviously, we've experienced unprecedented rates of anxiety and depression in our society, especially among youth and young adults. And, you know, I think I mentioned it on Christmas, but probably all of us have known somebody who has committed suicide sometime within you know, the last two years or so. And, you know, depression usually brings with it an alarming confidence about future darkness. Uh, to be depressed uh, is to be certain that how you feel right now is how you will always feel. There's really no hope of, of feeling well or hopeful. You just feel like, my future is nothing but bleak. And as someone who has struggled with depression pretty much all of his adult life, I get it. Like, when you're deeply depressed... The horizon is always gray. You know, it, it always looks grim, and it seems like you're never going to feel good about anything uh, again. How does secularism in our current cultural moment, how does, it, how does secularism help it? it? It doesn't, right? You know, when you die, that's, that's all there is. You're just, just like a candle that's snuffed out. Your body becomes fertilizer in the ground. And, you know, when you have people who come along and say, oh, you don't have to be afraid of death because when you die, you just don't exist anymore. I don't buy that as a, as a form of comfort for a moment. You know, because what you're telling me is that human relationships are gone forever, that love is gone forever, that everything I've ever done here has no lasting value, that everyone Everyone that we see will be dead a hundred years from now. That nobody will remember anything that any of us have done. Like, why wouldn't I be afraid of that? Why wouldn't? Like, where is the hope in that? And that's the thing. It's like our cultural moment does not have anything built in to provide hope. You need something from the outside. And that's where the resurrection comes in. If the resurrection is true... Nobody can say uh, for any degree of certainty that my future is bleak. <laughs> you can't say that with any degree of confidence. I mean, if the resurrection is true, then we have a God who, who's continually replying, you have no idea what I could possibly do. You have no idea what I'm capable of. You know, the early Christians could say to their friends, they could say, we know what the future is like, and the future is not... Uh, irretrievable darkness. It's not darkness. It's not nothingness. It's not that you become a faceless drop of water that falls back into the ocean. No, the dark seeming ir irreversibility of life and particularly of depression is, is nothing compared to what, what this God has in store for us. Something that I uh, learned this past week when Jesus in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, uh, speaks those famous, beautiful words. 
says, The one seated on the throne said, Behold, or look, I am making everything new. What I didn't realize is that the, okay, it'd be a little nerdy for a second. The tense of the verb there, it's a, it's a continual future. In other words, he's continually making everything, every day, all things new. That is, when Christ returns and there is a new heavens and a new earth, to continually make everything new means like every day, every day is actually better than the one before it. And like every day in the new heavens and the new earth is a better day than the one that just passed. Every person who experiences the resurrection, they get better. They don't go get worse. Like your resurrection body is not subject to entropy. It's not subject to decay. If anything, like it's, it's believable that when you're resurrected, every day you get, you know, smarter and faster and, and stronger than the day before. Has anybody ever told you that before? Because nobody had ever told me that before. Um, that's an, an incredible hope. I know of somebody who contracted shingles in their ear. And, you know, shingles is such a painful, um, is it a disease? You know, painful condition. And then eventually the shingles killed the nerves in half of their face. And then when the nerves regrew, they, they did so abnormally. And it's called, the technical title for it is Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, if you're familiar with it. And so, yeah, it, you know the supervillain in the DC comics, uh, Two-Face, I think what, in his case, half of his face was like burned off with, with acid. But this person said, you know, I feel kind of like two-faced because I can't smile anymore. At least I can't smile with half of my mouth. And, and I get cramps under my chin when I laugh too much on half my face. And I can't close my right eye completely. Like, I mean, talk about just, talk about a, a, a drag on life. The whole half of your face doesn't work anymore. And, and then this person says, but when I look in the mirror, I see a token of grace. Yeah, I know that what I experience now, I will not experience in the resurrection of the dead. I know that my face will be made whole again. I know that every infirmity is healed. Every affliction is conquered. When we are raised from the dead to new and everlasting life. And so when I look in the mirror, I see, I see promise. That that phrase just, it stood out to me because we are so accustomed, aren't we, to decay and de- decline. And like every, every year you age, something in your body just doesn't work right anymore. It seems like every year, you, year that passes, there's some new pain that emerges or, or something. Yeah, I mean, like you get skin cancer like I did and you get your lip cut. And so, you know, there's just always something going out on you. But what difference would it make? What difference would it make if you saw your own decline, not as a, a prediction of a bleak future, but a token of a gracious and, and, and beautiful future? Like what difference would it make if you, when you looked in the mirror and you saw all the things that are, are no longer working, it, it's a promise of the future where everything is always getting better. That's the kind of hope that I want to have. And I think that's the kind of hope that we were meant to have when we're taking the resurrection seriously. We have nothing to fear. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, you know, he says, As it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. He's using the imagery, the agricultural imagery, of, 
uh, the first fruits that you know come out on your tree. Uh, we have an orange tree in our backyard, and the first orange that appears, well, it's a it's an indicator that there are going to be hundreds and hundreds of more later. Okay, I'm over um, exaggerating a little bit because we probably only have like a you know seventy five on our tree, but nevertheless, the, the first fruits are telling you that. It's coming. A great harvest is coming. And he is the first fruits. Friends, no other faith says that. No other faith says that not only will we be resurrected as individuals, where every day is better than the previous day, but that the material world that surrounds us, that it will be renewed as well. That the human society, it's not destined for some ultimate oblivion, but for the longed-for goal of perfect prosperity, love, justice and peace you know that dr king was was uh you know stretching us to to strain towards as a society you know if the resurrection is true that makes hope possible and that infuses tomorrow with new possibilities and and just suddenly there's no there's no limit to what kinds of things we can look forward to uh, let me finish with this so i'll conclude the sermon here when i have counseled couples in the past. Um, over the years, I've seen a consistent pattern emerge. And I'm not saying that, you know, the gender roles that I'm going to describe right here are inflexibly stuck and it has to be this way. It just often happens that when they're, they're experiencing some financial struggle, normally, you know, say the husband's career is floundering, the husband is going to be in a tizzy. You know, he's like, oh, my life is falling apart. And in those moments, the wife oftentimes is like, honey, it'll be okay, just trust Jesus. But then if something goes wrong with one of the children, you know, the kid's not doing well uh, in school or the kid's having social problems, usually she's the one who's saying, my life is falling apart. She's experiencing the end of the world scenario. And the husband, by contrast, is like, we're just going to trust, we're just going to trust. What is happening in those situations? It's not that both of them don't care about the kids or both of them don't care about money or, or career. But in those instances, you know, the wife has built her significance and security on how the kids turn out. And the, the guy has built his significance and security on, you know, his career. And, you know, will I be a success? Will my children be okay? Will I be a success? That is where their hope is all oriented. And they both need a change of hope. And, you know, whether you know it or not, pretty much the everyday course of your life is being oriented based on where you place your hope. Whatever you hope in the most, um, that is setting the course for your life. And that is why if you can change a person's hope, you can change everything about them in their life. You know, only 20 years after Jesus' death, Paul was saying that there were 500 witnesses. Like, he believed that his hope was a certain historical reality and, and that, you know, the course of life was not moving just to an ending, but to something that is truly and wonderfully good. Is that your hope? You know, we spend a lot of our time, at least I do, obsessing over, you know, not being smart enough, good enough, or people don't like us enough, and, and our, our virtues are not enough. But there's something remarkably freeing when you, when you come to the point and you say, I don't have to be enough. <laughs> you know, Christ is enough. 
He's enough for me. And Christ is my complete hope. His resurrection promises that the all-embracing power of sin and death no longer holds sway and that the next day will be incalculably better um, than the previous. Amen.